0: Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm
1: Angel Eduardo.
0: We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel.
1: Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below.
0: Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community.
1: And welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Angel Eduardo, and my co host, who you will hear from in a moment, is Melissa Chen. In today's episode, we speak with Douglas Murray. Douglas is a journalist and author of many books, including The Strange Death of Europe, The Madness of Crowds, and most recently, The War on the West How to Prevail in the Age of Unreason. Douglas is also a columnist for The Spectator and has written regularly for numerous other outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, The Times, The Sunday Times, The Sun, the Evening Standard, and The New Criterion. Today, we discuss how Douglass labels himself and the utility of labels in general, especially politically. The difference between British and the American right, his book, The War on the West, how self-criticism in America has become self-loathing, dog whistles, noticing the good and the bad in all societies, whether there's hope for the future and whether Douglas has any praise for the left. Ladies and gentlemen, Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives.
2: Hey, very good to be with you.
1: So we actually met a couple of days ago. Yes. Uh, because we just we both happened to be in New York. Yes. We we didn't get to chat too much, but I've been thinking, you know, a lot of labels get thrown at everybody, and people throw labels at each other constantly. You know, we are constantly being being labeled as a far right organization. I yeah. I have been labeled all kinds of things. Yeah, it's strange. Um, and we you also don't strike, get,
2: you don't strike me as a far right organization nor as a far right individual.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't strike myself that way. <laughs> but apparently,
2: what would you I, know about I, I, yourself?
1: Right. So, but. That's, I was curious, actually, you know, how do you label yourself and what, is it, what does the label mean to you? I think, you know, clarity on that is probably pretty important to start with.
2: Well, I label myself a writer, partly because it's <laughs> yeah. very, very useful catch-all, not least for people who don't do anything. <laughs> uh, being a writer can cover absolutely just a range of sins. <laughs> so that's the main thing. And actually, it is true. That, that's what I think about myself. That's what I do. That's what I spent my whole adult life doing. I've been a writer since I was first published right. at the age of 20. And, but, I, but, but you mean political labels.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was
2: starting off, I minded about that, which I think is probably quite commonplace. I think when you start off, labels matter for a couple of reasons. One is actually young people, and I would say young men in particular, have a need to belong tribally. Um, And politically, tribal political belonging is quite a good way of doing that. And, um, you know, when you don't know uh, very much about anything, it's also useful to have, as it were, a ready-made set of what I think about the following issues. You know, so you may not have spent any time thinking about a particular thing, but, you know, we think this broadly about that. And that's very attractive. It's very, uh, very encouraging in a way. So there's that thing that when you start off, you need them. And the second thing is, I promise I'm going to get to your answer, an answer, but this is
1: No, please, please.
2: Territory. The other thing is that when you're starting off, you need a way to label yourself that will mean that other people can pigeonhole you. So people sometimes say, I don't want to be pigeonholed. Right. And the thing is, if you can't be pigeonholed at all, when you're starting off, that's actually not ideal because... People need, if they have no other information, they, they do need to kind of somehow pin you to something, they roughly know where you're coming from. You can't yeah. be a complete like, free agent who just shoots off in every direction because otherwise people don't want you, to, they don't know whether they, when they commission you to write what you might do anything, mm-hmm. uh, or when you get invited onto a program, they, they want to know roughly the place you're coming from. So labels are very useful when you're starting and I suppose I've always been uh, right of center and conservative with a small C. Uh, I've always had conservative-minded instincts. I don't mind admitting that. Uh, I don't think it's any sort of shame. Roughly half the public have conservative-minded mm-hmm. instincts and more on a range of other things. So I'm definitely more of the right than I am of the left, albeit that changes depending on the country you're in, of course. Right. Um, yeah. And so I suppose I've always been labeled as a conservative. Uh, and have never resisted that never seen any particular need to but i don't mm. particularly like being pigeonholed as a conservative writer because that would suggest that my writing only has utility to half of the public and right. I, i'd like to think that isn't the case
1: yeah <laughs> it's, it's funny as you were saying that you know that it's useful to have it's useful to be pigeonholed in the beginning mm. that that is an experience i i i had being in bands not wanting to be stuck mm. in a particular genre, but then right. making it impossible for people who liked anything to kind of get into it. So yes. I can see that, but it's, it's funny because...
2: The other thing is, isn't it, sorry, is is you, um, yeah. uh, you need to do it because there's that thing that people say when they're starting off, which is, as I say, I, I don't want to be pigeonholed because I don't want people to think about me as X. Right. And it, well, the thing is that they're not thinking about you. right okay they're not thinking about you at all right so unless they think about you as x or y or whatever in a non-chromosomal sense then they just you're not being thought about right but that's interesting interesting you say that that's the case in music as well i think that's
1: yeah i mean if you're if you're too weird and i mean everybody you know the the number one question for a musician is also what what does your band sound like what what kind Mm -hmm. of music is it and Usually they're like, oh, I don't know. It's impossible to to put into words. Mm. And as the as the artist, that that matters to you because you want the freedom to create and explore and express yourself. Yes. Yes. But to the to the person asking the question, they just want to know what what sort of thing am I getting into here? And do right. I want to get into that? And if you can't answer it, made, they may yep. they may just be like, Well, I don't want to get into that. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so I, I see that point. Um, but there's the wrinkle, too. You mentioned it about depending on what country you're in. How do you see the difference between left and right, you know, in Britain versus in America? You're kind of straddling both of those worlds. Mm. So how, do the, how does that dichotomy work for you?
2: Oh, it works fine for me, uh, I'm, I, partly because I find it very interesting. Mm. The British right has made peace with certain things that the American right has not. Uh, principally oh, like the what? welfare state. Ah. But, but there, there, there is always a thing about limiting it uh, or at least not endlessly pouring money into it but but the British right has made peace with the welfare state in a way that the American right is not and um and then there's a whole range of other things i mean the British right is on social issues you know pretty liberal, very liberal, you might say, and the American right still fights over certain of these issues, so there's sort of there's unfinished business in America on certain issues which I find very, very interesting. And, you know, I don't, I don't mind. I, I, I observe it. So, you know, the fact that the British right has given up on certain things, sometimes I don't mind. And sometimes I think, oh, I wish you had more fight in you. Mm. And then sometimes I look at American conservatives and I think, oh, I wish I had something less fight in you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's our problem. Like
0: gun control and things like that. Well, you know, I, I think, Douglas, you know, you, well, not only write for certain center-right publications that I write for also, Spectator namely, but, but also a lot, of, a lot of your work over the years, you know, can be characterized in a way, you know, with the strange death of Europe um, and recently your most recent book, the, the War on the West, which thank heavens somebody is talking about this and somebody's daring enough to defend the West because it seems like it absolutely uh, needs a defense and first and foremost, I kind of want to dig deeper in, in, into this book because your thesis is just, it's, it's really expansive. You spend a good chunk of the book actually summarizing what has happened, especially you did a really good job kind of summing up what happened in the last two years since the summer yes. of love with the George Floyd killing. And as I read the book, what struck me was just how much had, had been condensed in just this past two years that was so radical in terms of transforming where we are, where we are and what is mainstream. That seemed to have mainstream a lot of what was formerly radical positions. Yes. And, but then you dig even further and you look, you know, back even more. What are the, what are the seeds that were first planted and mm. how all of that from Edward Said all the way to mm. George Floyd lit this tinderbox. Um, could you yes. kind of sum up for the audience listening here, what your, what your thesis is in War of the West?
2: Yes. I mean, essentially, it's, it's there's, there's a form of Western anti-Westernism, which has been spreading in recent decades in the West. Uh, there's lots of anti-Westernisms. There's Chinese anti-Westernism. There's Arab anti-Westernism. The one I'm interested in is Western anti-Westernism. The dislike of the West by people in the West, the suspicion of the West, the condemning of the West by people in the West. People who think that there's nothing so bad as the societies they're in, even as the world tries to move into them. And, um, and, and, the, and that they have no right to criticize other societies or other cultures. I believe this movement has, as you say, been germinating for a very long time. I, I, trace, I trace some of it back to the American Academy from the 1960s and 70s onwards. But this is all spilled out into the, into the wider culture a long time ago now. Um, but as with all proto-revolutionary movements, you know, people work away at them and then they have their time. And the anti Westernness, which in particular, the, uh, war, what I described as a war on Western history, you know, uh, which culminated in 2020 in the, in the literal pulling down of almost every hero from particularly the American past. Mm. Starts off with Southern generals, ends up with Northern generals, ends up with Northern politicians, ends up with founding fathers, ends up with everybody. That, that, that only happened because for many years ahead of that, people have been putting in place the groundwork of ideology that said everything from the Western past is suffused with guilt and blame and everything should be looked at through the remorselessly monomaniacal lenses of racism, slavery, and colonialism. And that instead of being a part of our history, which these things are, as they have been a part of everybody's history, that they are the history. So instead of racism being an aspect of the American past, racism is a lens to look at everything in the American past. Mm. And uh, that movement was being put in place for a very long time. And I believe, yes, it had its moment in the summer of 2020 to spill onto the streets and basically terrorize corporations, businesses, government, and others into having to go along with it. And we've seen that plenty of times. And uh, we almost certainly haven't seen the end of it by any means. I mean, America is always one bad police interaction away from burning down, which Mm -hmm. is never a happy thought. But, uh, you know, we've seen this with similar revolutionary movements in the past. You know, the the Bolsheviks worked away for an awfully long time before their moment arrived in 1917. These, You know, an ideology has to be worked at and thought about to some extent in order that mobs and crowds and others can pick them up and have something to run with, even though sometimes it's just an excuse and it's people love burning stuff or stealing stuff or destroying stuff. Mm. You know, very often it's just an excuse. You know, mm. I want to take stuff shopping with violence. You
0: know. Yeah, I'm I saying that you, you, you reserve a lot of vitriol for a few culprits, which you single out, um, which is the media mm. for, for running with certain narratives and, and for even sometimes doubling down on a narrative, even when there's no evidence for it. You mentioned a few cases right. in your book, and then also elite capture. You talk a lot about how mm-hmm. um, the elites in this country um, have been captured by a lot of this, uh, a lot of this kind of ideology. But also, you know, I think I think one of the major issues is really like how does a country prevail when its elites seem to harbor so much self-loathing, right? Well, the answer is that is, it
2: I mean, it just won't. <laughs>
0: Okay. Just what? Okay.
2: I mean, a, you, a, a country can't be led by people who hate it um, or think it's fundamentally rotten, and people won't um, want to defend it. I mean, I don't know if you. I'm sure, well, I'm sure you did see that poll that came out at the beginning uh, uh, after Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine earlier this year. There was a poll of Americans asking them what they would do in a similar situation if somebody invaded America and uh, a majority of Democrats said that they would leave, they'd flee. And only okay. just about a majority of Republicans said they'd stay and fight. Uh, 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 about half, it's about half and half. And by the way, one of the interesting things about that poll, I mean, you can't read too much into polls on these things because it's so hypothetical. But, you know, for about half of Americans to say we'd hot-foot it to Canada, assuming that it wasn't Canada that did the invading, it, it, for about half of Americans to say that is... is quite startling for a couple of reasons. One is you normally tell pollsters things, you've, you normally people lean towards the thing that puts them in a better light. So the mm. figure could be a lot worse than that. Uh, but mm. the second thing is, of course, it makes a total sense. I mean, this isn't my view, but why, why would you give up your life for a country which was rotten and had been from the start? And the people mm-hmm. who say that are not minor figures. You know, it's, it's as I say, in the War on the West, it's, you know, it's the U.S.'s ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who says this country was born in sin. It was born with its original mm-hmm. sin. And by the way, there's no way we can get rid of it. Nothing you can do in all the centuries since. Nothing that the American people have done. And none of the blood they've shed and none of the treasures they've, they've spent. None of it has alleviated any of that sin and none of it ever will, as far as I can see. So like, why would you lay down your life for that? I do think, by the way, that permeates a lot in American culture. Look at Duvalde and the policemen. I mean, in one way, of course, their behavior is completely contemptible. And on another, you know, never be too proud about this because you never know what you would do yourself. And like we all like to think we'd be heroes, but who knows? However, the police sitting in the corridor for 45 minutes whilst children are being shot in the classroom. The policemen know, and I was speaking to a friend who was in the Marines a few days ago about this. It probably knew that the first people through, the first person through the door would be shot. Yeah. yeah. Well, America has always relied on the first person through the door knowing they'd be shot. Now, I don't want to do the obvious example, but like D-Day, uh, the men knew that. Right. For, for the first wave, was mm-hmm. not in a good position. Well, nevertheless, they they ran at the enemy, and I think we've in America in particular created this society where like, why would a police Policemen have been told they're all rotten and racist. They've, they've listened as mainstream politicians mm-hmm. have said, "All, you know, abolish the police," or "All cops are bastards." Is scrawled all over their area, and whether they're black or white, they're apparently racist monsters. Like, uh, why exactly do you do you, do you risk your life on top of that? It's not clear to me. But it seems, I'm just giving you an example, these things have embedded themselves, I believe, and now have practical consequences, which are very, very serious for society.
1: Yeah, they, they certainly do have consequences. And I think the Uvalde situation is particularly heinous. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to think about. It's such an awful situation. Mm. But, you know, they, it's their job. It's literally their job. It's their job. You it's know, their job. Uh, it's inexcusable. Lack of action there, as far as I'm concerned. But but yeah. I do see I do see you know I I have some friends who are police officers, and I do see what you mean about the kind of disheartening sort of climate that they find themselves mm-hmm. in, where they're like, why why am I even doing this? I mean, yeah, I know police officers who are actively trying to get out of,
3: oh policing. yeah, policing.
1: You know, they're they're like, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this yeah. anymore, which is awful because yes you know, at least the ones that I know, I, you know, are very good people and they're the type of people that I want to be police officers. Right. Right. So the only people left are going to be
2: the people you know, don't want to be police officers. Yeah,
1: right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned the the polling and how usually people answer polls in a way that would put them in a better light. I wonder if that's still happening because so much mm-hmm. of of this kind of negativity bias towards America or the political system or our political parties or whatever, however you want to divide it is performative. I think people kind of Mm. pretend to hate things more than they actually do. Right. We Mm. all, every, every election cycle, we get the thing of if, if this person wins, I'm moving to Canada or I'm leaving (laughs) and they never do. Right. I don't know of any single person who tweeted that particularly a, a, you know, a famous, you know, celebrity type person who who tweeted that it's an emotional thing. It's a signaling thing. It's to say, Mm. I am so upset about this situation Mm. and it's really just performative. It's really just, you know, to to signal something. So I wonder if the poll is the same thing. It's like, Oh, I wouldn't fight for this horrible place, but I wonder, Um, you know, if, if it really came down to it, you know, I can't imagine somebody saying, ah, you know, take my house. I don't care and just Uh, (laughs) leave. Sure, it's
2: possible. I mean, you never know. I mean, when I wrote about that poll a little while ago, I mentioned that, of course, in in Britain, the the most famous example of this ever happening was the Oxford Union debate in the early 1930s, where the Oxford Union famously debated the motion this house would not Mm. uh, give up its life for king and country. Mm. And uh, the the majority voted, I think, roughly two-thirds to one-third, that they would not fight for king and country. And, and of course, that makes total sense in a way, because that generation was one whose fathers all fought and very often died in the trenches of the first world war as Europe tore itself apart. And the feeling of the pointlessness of conflict was very, very high in the air, as well as the appalling whole coat, dust coating of mourning was over the whole culture.
3: Yeah.
2: And so it made sense. It was, of course, if you read the editorials from the day, you know, the prominent board chiefs and others, not least in the right wing media, that vote, you know, led to excoriating editorials. These young, lily-livered guys, they don't know how good they've got it and they're cowards and so on and so forth. And I mention that because, of course, it's worth remembering that the, the people who voted that way in the Oxford Union that night were precisely the people who six years later took up arms to fight for king and country. So, mm-hmm. so it's, not, it's not written, right. to quote, famous book. <laughs>
0: One one of the themes of, of um, that you explore a lot in your book is is, is this double standard that um, we seem to have. We we apply a certain standard. We uphold the West at least to a certain standard, mm-hmm. and it seems like when you know it is, um, say, China doing it or or the Middle East, whether it's looking at mm-hmm. even something like culture or cultural values, we we seem mm-hmm. to have completely you know like it. It just seems that there's either this is hypocrisy or some sort of, maybe people see this as an overcorrection. I can hear the argument sometimes people say, of course, wouldn't you want to hold the West to a higher standard? This is val- these are values yes. that you are espousing. China's not necessarily espousing it. that, although sometimes in, in diplomatic circles, they do co-opt the language of woke to use against the West, mm. yes. um, as, as you talked about as well. But why, why do you think this has come to pass? Like, why is the West held to a, a higher standard, even by its own people living in the West?
2: I think in part, I Melissa, mean, you, you, you know this, you've written about it as well, and you've seen it firsthand, as have I, is that an awful lot of people just don't know anything about outside of their own environment. I mean, they just, you know, I, I, I don't want to point to the stats on American travel because I think you can do the same thing, or passport holding, I think you can do the same thing fairly easily within Britain and other places. I mean, Western countries, you know, a small number of people travel the world to see the great cultures of the world. Most people travel relatively little, and they don't see cultures that are wildly different from their own. I do, like you do, and um, there are quite a lot of conclusions you can't help coming to from that. I mean, you know, if I stand in Beijing, I think, well, this is really quite something. It's very different, and there seems to be every difference in values here. I think the same thing in, in India, which is more um, recognizable to a, a Westerner. But, I mean, you, you can't be in Delhi and not think, wow, this is something very, very different, you know, diff- totally different norms and standards and, and values apply here. I mean, for instance, would a Westerner how how much time does it take for a Westerner to work out that one of the things about poverty in India? I'm I'm, I'm not trashing Indian society. Now. India has an extraordinarily rich culture, and stuff, but you can't also not notice certain defects as with any country. How how can a Westerner understand that the caste system is one of the major things that leads to the appalling poverty and homelessness and street mm-hmm. dwelling in India, and that? When, you, when, when a Western, very often, particularly a, a Christian Westerner, will look at people on the streets and think, why does nobody do anything about this? And the answer is in part, well, because a lot of the people in this country think that those people deserve it because mm. they did something bad. And you shouldn't help. Not only can you not help them, you shouldn't help them. And now, right. to a Westerner, a lot of that is like, what? Okay, right. well, it's different values on, on a very, very important thing. Uh, a different way of seeing things. Now, the Western person who doesn't know very much of the rest, West, rest of the world tends to be, among other things, extraordinarily arrogant in their presumptions of what the rest of the world believe. You know, I can always tell somebody who doesn't really know anything about the rest of the world when they say things like, well, most people everywhere want X. Yeah. Well, are you sure? Are you sure you're just not extrapolating out your own limited experience and putting that on everyone. Mm. So I think there's an enormous ignorance and an arrogance on top of the ignorance about what the most of the world is like, as well as what it has been like throughout history, which is one of my beefs that I write about in The War in the West, which is why why people seem to think that, well, they, but they don't seem to understand that people in the past thought differently. Sometimes they thought the same as us, but very often they just thought totally differently. I mean, one of the things I say in the, in the chapter on history is, you know, when the Founding Fathers were, were putting together, you know, you what know, the United States of America, they didn't know whether the races were related. Now, w- w- why? Well, because the polygenesis, monogenesis debate had not been settled and was quite a long way from being settled. So people mm-hmm. didn't know whether black people and white people were related, whether we were we actually from the same stock as human beings. Now, when we discovered that we were many in the 19th century, that changed an awful lot. But if, if you don't know the answer to that, and how could they because it hadn't been discovered yet, um, it makes it quite a lot easier to mistreat your fellow, well, fellow man, because you don't know they're your fellow man. I mean, it's terrible in retrospect, but, you know, what do people know as they're going through stuff? Only mm. what you've got in front of you.
1: Yeah, context is such an important thing, and and it's, I feel like it's ignored conveniently. Everyone wants uh, an appreciation for context when it yes. when it comes to them, right?
3: Yeah, I, I heard a
1: great, I heard a great. Uh, someone, a friend of mine, tweeted this wonderful thing. Her name is Alma Cook, and she mm. said, "You know, uh, only God can judge me." Mm. Just rolls off the tongue, right? Mm but Mm. only God can judge you seems to get stickier. It's a little bit harder for us to get that out for some reason.
2: Yeah. That's brilliant.
1: Yeah. Brilliant kind of, you know, it's, it's such an encapsulation of human nature, right? Mm. I think, you know, the fancy term is the fundamental attribution error, I think, where it's, you know, Mm -hmm. I have, I have reasons you have excuses, right? It's, it's that sort of. Yes.
2: This is the, um, the, the, the Russell conjugation where the, the judgment differs depending on the speaker. Right. Yeah. So yeah. he is, I'm great at parties. He talks too much. He's yeah, an alcoholic.
1: What can we do about that? How can we kind of flip the switches there so that people can see that more easily? Do you have any, any thoughts on how we can shift those perspectives?
2: Well, I mean, one, which I, I think I may have said to Melissa, one is, one is to, to have a bit of damn humility about some of this.
3: Right.
2: I, I, mean, I mean, obviously, one of the reasons why people don't want the context of the past is that the game at the moment appears to be judge everyone from the past. And first of all, you don't have to know anything about them. And secondly, you're better than them. I mean, I, I learned many years ago, actually, from reading Leo Strauss, that, which completely clicked with, with, with me, that, that the modern vice, as it were, was to look at the ancients and to regard us as being better than them because we know more. Now, and of course, as Strauss says, I mean the, <laughs> that means that you think you know more than Plato. Right. Because Plato didn't know about, um, uh, say, DNA. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a kind of bold claim. Like, Plato didn't know what we know now about the solar system. So are we better than Plato? Are we, are we cleverer? The modern, the modern presumption is, yes, because we know things that they didn't. They were losers. <laughs> and, uh, and that goes to moral issues as well. You see, we're better than mm-hmm. Aristotle because we condemn slavery completely, whereas Aristotle doesn't. We're better than John Locke because we know that religious freedom should be extended to everybody, not and, and we shouldn't you know, be, be withheld from Roman Catholics and atheists. So we're better than Locke, smarter. Because Immanuel Kant uses uh, certain words in German uh, that we would not use today, we don't need to encounter Kant. Uh, we don't need to deal with him because he was a racist and on and on and on. And, and there's two advantages to this in the modern mind. One is great. We can put our feet up. We don't need to do any work. We could just say everyone in the past was bigoted. And then we don't need to read. And secondly, of course, it says, and then we can stand on the rubble and declare ourselves victor, moral victor. Well, and that feels quite good for a certain time. You get quite high on the octane of that. Mm. But um, you should rather, I think, think well. Everybody said everybody's done things in history that seem nuts in retrospect. What is it we're doing? In the, you know, and what is it we're doing in our own age that will probably be de- deemed like that as well? Melissa knows that our editor, Spectators, made this point quite often, Fraser Nelson. I really, really appreciate this point. He says, you know, assume that our own era is doing things that people in the future will wonder about. Try to work out what they are and address them now. I mean, you know, there are obvious ones I could put out there. Like, I do think that in 50 years' time, people will look back at parents encouraging their young daughter to have a double mastectomy Mm. because Mm -hmm. felt a bit boyish sometimes or felt a bit left out or felt... Awkward in their body, in their teams, which of course nobody does, um, that, that people will look back at the pa- parents going, Yay, double mastectomy with our daughter, top surgery day, and look at the scars in the photos and think they would, like, what? So, and I, and one of the things I say on things like that is, like, have some damn humility about it. I mean, I said this in my last book, The Man of the Crowds, but I mean, like, on the trans thing, like, at least admit we don't know very much at all about what trans is. And be very careful, particularly in the realm of children. children. Be very careful. And our age doesn't even to want to do that. We, we, we do exactly what we condemn other people for doing in the past act on very mm. limited information, behave like gods, and then commit atrocities on top of that.
0: I advanced the theory once yeah. that, um, on, on Twitter, at least, that you know, I, I think in part why certain East Asian cultures are so resistant to quote unquote what we loosely call. Wokeness is because of Confucianism, yeah. and partly because mm. Confucian societies and it have these kinds of values which respect the past, and that seniority—you mm. know, age itself—is yes. is one reason to respect pers- uh, uh, yes. a certain individual. Now, if you respect right. the past and you respect your elders, you're not going to throw them under the—you know—you're not going to throw them under the bus. Mm. You're not going to just chuck everything that they've ever stood for and ever said and ever lived and call it racist. Mm. You just don't have that authority to do so as a younger yeah. person. Yeah. And so I, I've advanced this idea that Confucianism might be a secular bulwark against mm. wokeness that I don't think we're talking about enough or exploring enough. Um but then somebody like James Lindsay, I think, replied and said, "Yeah, but what about the Cultural Revolution? I think you're wrong." So
2: that's um, <laughs> quite a big, quite a big footnote. Which, yeah,
0: yeah, it's quite a big one. But actually, yeah. going back to going back to that, uh, especially when when it comes to the double standard con- uh, point that you were making, I wonder if this is the reason why Hitler is seen in a totally different league as Stalin and Mao. Like till today, hmm. for whatever reason. It seems like the crimes of Mao and Stalin do not mm. put them in 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 the same company mm. as Hitler, it, but it sh- but they should be. If you look at the death toll, if you look at sure. you know, so I wonder if this is is one of those uh, consequences of that myopia of, of mm. just the the double standard. We're holding the West to a yes. higher standard, and we're kind of disregarding. Do, is, do you do you think that's what's um, happening there?
2: I think there is something in that. I, I, I'm. Uh... I mean, there's a lot of unfinished business in the 20th century still going around. And one of the most interesting bits of unfinished business is, is exactly what you just alluded to. Hitler is quite rightly understood to be the most evil person. Uh, and that's where the right is seen as going wrong. And then, of course, there's this debate about whether Hitler was actually far right or whether he was socialist, far right, and all that stuff. But let's park that mm. for the time being and just say that there's a place where the far right clearly, you know, just where the right goes wrong. And it's at the far right where they play games of, for instance, you know, very savage games of ethnic superiority or racial superiority, that sort of stuff. Of course, the left can do that as well. But let's just say for the moment, I'm anticipating comments below the thread below, Let's just save the time <laughs> being, the sake of argument, that's where the far right can go. Well, where is, it that the far, where is it that the far left ends up at the gulag? We don't really know because people aren't as interested. There isn't like a tripwire moment. So when somebody like, um, I won't mention his name, a very nasty far right guy in America, younger, young guy, starts to play with games about Holocaust denial. You're like, oh, okay, I know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas when mm-hmm. the radical leftists wear their Che Guevara T-shirts, hmm, uh, what are they doing there? They seem to be covering over or indeed praising the crimes of socialism. And um, that's ugly. Wow. Now, where does that end up in the gulag? Um, not enough attention has been paid to it. I do think that has practical consequences in our day. I think our society is relatively well, I say caveat all the time, but relatively well immunized to the far right. You know, once we see it crop up, whether it's, at, you know, Charlottesville or, or you, know, as, you know, aspects of the people who went on January the 6th, by no means all of them at all, but bits of that, then like we know like what that is and we condemn it. We don't have a problem condemning it. We don't need to have any what ifs or buts or anything. Mm. Uh, uh, are we confident that we know where, where the tripwires are on the left, far left, the radical left that allow us to do that with great confidence? I don't think we are. And in part, that is the unfinished business of the 20th century. People don't know the names of Stalin's generals and Stalin's henchmen like they do Hitler's. And in Mm. part, Martin Amis has said in the past in his book on this Cobra the Dread said that's partly just the names. It's kind of funny to reflect on, but I think it's possible the names of people who did this in China and Russia are harder to remember. Mm. Um, I mean, there is there might be something in that like people don't know if if i said like who are the main people who carried out the genocide of 60 million people in china in mao's time very few people outside of china especially, would be able to name them mm-hmm. uh, is that lack of curiosity I, it's also something to do with well of course the horror of nazism happening right in the center of civilized europe you know that's undoubtedly one of the things from the 20th century we're still horrified by and mulling on and Somehow we think, well, that sort of thing happens in Cambodia, but like, how did it happen in Vienna and Berlin? Mm. You know, so we do have some kind of double standard on that, and some of that is understandable and inevitable. It happened on your doorstep. Or it happen right in front of your house. It happened in your mm. house. It's very troubling. It's a very, very troubling question, though, that because it, it definitely leads to a political problem in the here and now.
1: Right. You know, you're talking. You're making a couple of points here that make me think about the distinction between the west and the east or however you want to draw the line right mm-hmm. and we're we're kind of speaking in a context where we are the west and we speak of ourselves mm-hmm. versus some other mm-hmm. nebulous region or nebulous mm-hmm. sort of collection of of peoples and countries and things but but you know you pointed to you know first of all obviously yes you know you know this is the kind of thing that happens over there but then here here mm-hmm. it is happening here right and then a smaller scale version is something that you said earlier, actually, where you were, you know, talking about the, the caste system and seeing all these people mm. in poverty. And as a result of the caste system, as a result of a particular ideological framework, people look at those people and say, not only do I not care that they're in that situation, but they deserve to be in that situation. Mm. Now, that exact rationale I've heard you know, constantly mm-hmm. here, you know, in the West, in America, from you know, extremely conservative, sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of people, right? Like, if mm-hmm. you didn't make it, it's your fault. If you didn't make mm-hmm. it, it's you know, America's great. America's the land of opportunity. So it's uh, it's your fault if you screw up. If you're poor, if you're mm-hmm. homeless, why should I help mm-hmm. you, right? I'm, and you know, so that makes me wonder about how. How clear the the lines really are between these these you know?
2: Yes, well, I think I think Angel, the, 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 you know, there's there's that saying, there's nothing quite so unforgiving as a self-made man, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, which is is true to some extent in that mm-hmm. unusual people can, if they've made it themselves, think well, what if you didn't make it yourself, you're a loser. But we do have a we do have a lot built in to to, to I would say, particularly in America, to counter that view. I mean, the the sort of you-can-make-it-if-you-want-to thing is partly true, but also people know it's partly untrue. And that there are just people born into highly suboptimal circumstances and places and situations and family structures and and much more that just it's not a great start in life and it's hard to get out of. And uh, whereas there are people who are born in situations where it's easier. And by the way, I do think that's sort of built in, actually, in America. For instance, I mean, Americans seem to me, for instance, not to not to like people who pretend to be self-made but are actually born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They actually don't like that very much. They don't like those people lecturing to them, pretending to be a kind of American success story when they're actually, say, a Vanderbilt.
1: Right. Or a Kardashian. (laughs) Or a Kardashian. Yeah, they're self-made though. They're self-made. Yeah, Kim Kardashian (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Kim Kardashian, I think, recently got into hot water for something, or she was saying, you know, just get to work, or something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, because like, well, having
2: yes. your own reality TV show or having a sex tape <laughs> leaked is a really good day's work.
1: But she made
0: that herself. Yeah, she made. It, but but in that sense, it's a self-made
1: product. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but and, I, and but not exactly <laughs> a hard day's work for a hard, for a good day's wage, you know.
1: Well, you know, I'm reminded of this too. You know, I, I, I spoke to, you know, talking to my wife about this. She came back from a, uh, an event she went to, I think it was kind of like a, you know, public talk between two people. And this person's very successful an entrepreneur and she's got her own business and she built it herself and all this sort of stuff. And someone inevitably asked the question, well, how did you do that? How did you get to where you are? Right. And you know, she said, well, you know, I networked and I worked really, really hard. And, it, you know, it was curious to me all the parts that she left out that maybe she doesn't even realize. So it's it's yes, network. Yes, work really hard. Ooh. Yes, be determined. Yes, get yourself in the right position, but also be incredibly attractive. Also be right. uh, financially well off. Also have many, many friends in high places. Right. Those Ooh. things never seem to get mentioned, Ooh. but they're they're so integral to the, yeah. the yeah. whole process of becoming successful i think you know so Absolutely. yeah as you as you mentioned
2: but i do think we have that built in, i do think we have built-in responses like that that can mm. mitigate that and i mean somebody who's done well ought to give back i mean that's actually a saying is i'm giving back always with that yeah. slight thing of, well what did it mean you were taking out before there's a there's a there's a problem with that as well but 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 there's also an american side for instance it's a question of too much empathy too much generosity I mean, you can't go to a Democrat-run city like San Francisco at the moment and think that if you just threw more money at the problem, you'd solve it. Right. I mean, you can't. Right. Like, a lot of the people who are on the streets of San Francisco and so on needed somebody in their lives to come along and stand over their lives and get it in order and tell them to stop. Mm. And and just just stop. They didn't need encouragement. They didn't need more understanding. They needed a bit of... Discipline in their lives, and they didn't get it from anyone, and um, and so they have ended up with totally chaotic lives. That's not the case with everyone, but God knows that's the case with many of them. And um, so, so it's not like the left's answer of forever being more and more empathetic is a solution in itself any more than a more conservative answer of pull yourself up by your bootstraps is on its own enough. Hmm.
0: Well, yeah, but but going back to Angel, to your original. Your original question about, about delineation between the West and what's not West. I, I do think the West is not just a geographical place, but also an intellectual, Mm -hmm. historical and and cultural tradition. I'm born in Singapore and I grew up in Singapore, but I consider myself off the West in many ways, because that is the tradition Mm -hmm. I inherited from, you know, the Mm -hmm. the schools that I went to. We do the GCEO levels, the A levels, the British penal code, the the Mm -hmm. culture if I talk to Douglas long enough, I will actually switch back to a British accent because my American <laughs> accent is learned. So, so in, in that sense, you know, I, I think, um, I think there is something to be uh-huh. said of, of, of what is, you know, a defense of Western civilization seems to be uh, needed, but there are many factions right now who even view this term Western civilization itself as yes. as racist and therefore the defense of it. Yeah. They as, think it's right. say, uh, basically white supremacy,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. They think it's uh, like a dog whistle. That's one of the great, things, the great idiocies. Right, dog whistle. As I always Correct. say, if you heard the whistle, but, you're the dog. So careful about that.
0: But the thing is, but the thing is that yeah. there are some people who do that, right? Like there are some people who will talk about it in these times oh, that yeah, sure, are actual, sure, right? Are. So sure, yes. But, but they're going to lump even people who have legitimate, mm. uh, you know, <laughs> legitimate points to make. Well, you know, um, I mean, in, in that same camp.
2: I agree. I just think that, I mean, you you can't allow that to hold you back. You can't not defend the good things of Western civilization and Western history and Western culture and Western ideas, including its amazing openness to other cultures and ideas. You can't not defend that or speak up for it or stand up for it because there will be reprehensible people trying to speak in the same Mm -hmm. language. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we understand, for instance, that people who commit sexual crimes can speak the same language as people who speak the language of love. Like, right. we understand that love started the Trojan Wars and led to a terrible death toll for time without thinking that as a result, love is the problem. Right. We, that, like, everything, everything has like, the ability to be used by bad people uh, as I say, I mean the principle of of egalité. What are the words? What are the words that the French revolutionaries use? Mm-hmm. Liberté, liberté, egalité,
0: fraternité.
2: fraternité. I mean, yeah. you seriously? I mean, what about the Committee of the Public Safety? That sounds pretty good. Oh, what did it do? Wasn't that good for public safety? Mm-hmm. Ends up in the terror straight away. So, like everything that that's the case with. I, I mean, you know, I have a little bit of my brain that goes whenever I hear somebody talking about the public safety, mm. because I immediately think of Robespierre, but not everybody does. In fact, relatively right. few people today do, probably particularly in modern America. But so, like, everything's got, everything's got booby traps in it. That's true. It doesn't mean that you don't talk about equality or, or, or liberty, because Robespierre did. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's, it's a lot of language games and kind of gotchas and, and booby yeah. traps, as you said, it's a lot. I mean, I of, could do
2: it. I could do yeah. it every time somebody says equality. I could say, yeah. ah, you know, nah, that's a dog whistle to the Stalinist left. Right. <laughs> right. That'd be a weird yeah. thing to do. I mean, it wouldn't help but, us very much.
1: Yeah. It's, it strikes me as a, just a lack of, of, it's a lack of charity, a lack of a willingness to, to actually understand, right. We want to kind of keep, you know, getting back to the pigeonholing thing. It's very hard once you're in that box to get out of it. You know, people, people, as you mentioned, you know, I think, uh, struggle to get themselves in the box so that they can be noticed and talked about. And then they spend the whole rest of the time struggling with being in that box or actively trying to get out of it. And people, people yeah. are not very helpful with that. They're like, no, 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 you're going to stay right there in that box yeah. that we made you.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I, th- I don't know about you, but Angel, but I think that might be um, way. I think the box's uh, sides are um, very soggy and falling apart. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think people are, are less and less bothered about these constraints and the names and the call, name calling and much more. I think there's a very exciting thing happening at the moment of basically the next generation coming up, seeing through these games that we're describing them, that Hmm. people roughly of our age, if I can lump ourselves even remotely in the same age bracket, but (laughs) roughly of our age had to find our own way through some of this. And the ones coming up have had the way found for them and are now Hmm. going to do something better, you know, and more. And I think that is beyond ideology. I've said this quite a few times, but I notice it among young people who turn up for events, Hmm. that they don't tend to be radical doctrinaires. What they are are people who are migrating towards what they know to be the issues of their time. Mm -hmm. And wanting to be around other people migrating towards those issues too, in order that they can see and be part of the best possible thinking about them in order to solve some things. I don't, i don't, say, you know, and I think that's different because even 10 years ago, that, 15 years ago, that would have been a right-left thing. And I don't see that now. And actually, I, I sort of deplore the people who would like to reduce everyone to a right-left thing. It's sort of so boring, isn't it? I mean, I don't think, I, I, oh, yeah. I don't think that's, I think it's very tedious. Te- the right-left thing is very tedious.
1: Yeah. No, I totally agree. And, and I think I, I actually feel the same way you do about that. And that, that there's, that's cause for optimism in my view, mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, practicality and reality is going to hit people where they're going to feel, you know, these labels are, are really constricting and they don't, they don't do me any good. They don't do me any justice. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to just actively break out of them. And that's just yes. going to create a new paradigm. Yes. Um, but in the meantime, you know,
2: <laughs> yeah. I had a funny one the other night. I, don't it. I was at a dinner, where lots of, um people from very interesting different walks of life and, um, uh, around the table. And we sort of cohered on the same problem and were mm. talking around it. And, but I could feel that there was a sort of, you know, liberal New Yorkers sort of thing. And, um, uh, it was quite funny because, you know, everyone was still like maintaining their liberal credentials sort of thing. And and a guy, <laughs> the guy to my left said at some point, he said, he said, I mean, he said, "I don't think anyone around this table is, you know, is, is right wing." And I said, "Oh no, I'm really right wing." <laughs> <laughs> Partly to sort of just, see. and he said, "Oh, actually, I am too." But um, I actually just, <laughs> I did it because it was just like I couldn't bear the the way in which the thing had been like constrained here, and I just wanted to, say, oh come on, it doesn't matter. Let's speak a bit more openly about this and mm. try to not limit ourselves this much um and and i do think that uh, there's a lot of that and people have like social pressures and all these silly yeah. games they play but actually if, you, if the best thing today in america is that more and more people and i say this with very much bearing in mind the two of you um, there are just more and more people in america you know who are in this space and are helping to move things forward in some positive direction it seems to me and that wasn't the case. Like, that wasn't the case even 10 or 15 years ago. It's the case now. If you, if, if you said 10 or 15 years ago, who are the people who are doing some of the heavy lifting on some of the ideological problems of our time? You know, you had quite small lists and they were left or right lists. And now if somebody says, you know, who, who have you got who are like good thinkers in the current era in America, I don't know, under the age of 40? It's really not hard to list people. Mm. And the list, by the way, is without any curation, very, very genuinely diverse.
0: Hmm. Right.
2: So something's happening naturally.
0: But, but do you think it's because the, you know, for whatever reason, like maybe the progressives have overplayed their hands? Um, are are mm-hmm. people Yes, they've pissed a lot of people off. Sat- <laughs> are are, are <laughs> the younger, is the younger generation also just kind of? sort of like rebelling against this almost saturation mm-hmm. of, of politics into every domain of life in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Angel and I, our generation, I guess Douglas, we're probably in the same generation, but we, you know, kind of didn't have where we were growing up. I I, mm-hmm. I re- certainly remember sports being mm-hmm. free of of politics, uh, yeah. which is not true of of, of the situation today. So, I, I mean, do you think that's what's happening? Because, you know, if if we are to want to build an ecosystem uh, to accelerate these trends it, should we just is it just happening naturally or are there things that we can do
2: um the best thing uh, that can be done is to show that the path is um not just safe but fun mm. and mm. rewarding and uh, i think that's happening I again, I mean, I you know, you know I, I've written a bit about so-called cancel culture and all that sort of stuff. I, the term I don't like, but things have moved on. Even in the few years since I wrote *The Madness of Crowds*, for instance, there were prominent people who were destroyed and didn't have another act as a result. It's like unfairly destroyed, often brilliant people, unfairly destroyed, and they weren't given another act. Now, all those people do. They, if a mob comes for somebody, then another group of people concentrates on that person, looks at what's really happening. And they not only can have another act, but sometimes have a much better act in front of them. They're actually liberated and raised up and go forward stronger and better off and with a better set of friends. And, um, and again, have a better life. Mm. That's, that's a change. I mean, look at all the people who've fallen out with, look at all the people who fell out with the mainstream media in the past who were in the media and who, after falling out with their employer, never had another job. Those people have loads of options now. They can go to Substack or they can go to any number of other platforms and they can make a much better living very often. Mm -hmm. there's There's lots of things starting up in America as well less Mm. so perhaps in Britain, but there's lots of things starting up in America, which are going to catch these people already are. And, um, Oh yeah. I, I I think the next thing is, is going to be really exciting because it's like we've cleared the wastrels out of the way and Mm. we've cleared a lot of the bad ideas and the bracken of bad ideas out of the way. Mm. And, you know, I said this the other day, there's a wonderful former and uh, podcaster now clifton duncan who i was talking with and i said you know he said at one point he said i don't know if the you know people are coming along who are going to write these plays and these songs i was like clifton they are because the the ground is open now in a way that it wasn't as i say mm-hmm. even 10 years ago and uh, although i don't know exactly who's going to do it i've got some hopes but like i think there are a lot of smart young people who have thought through this stuff, who are now working in Hollywood and the scriptwriters, and the comedians and the playwrights and the musicians and artists and thinkers and philosophers, and mm-hmm. hopefully at some point politicians even who can get through this and they, they're yeah. doing it and they're listening to us now and uh, they will do those things.
1: Yeah, Clifton Clifton Duncan is actually a an a fellow for Fair in the Arts, which is an initiative yeah. that we have, which is designed really to do just that, to, to kind of mm. create a community of of those sorts of people and foster that exact sort of mm. endeavor. Uh mm. so I you know, it's 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 heartening actually to to hear such hopefulness from you because I think it's very easy mm. to get the impression that you're a curmudgeon-y kind of <laughs> No, <laughs> that's a curmudgeon. Right. Yeah, no, that's the that's the vibe I get from people about you, which is, is not true at all. And, you know, I, I wanted to actually talk to you about this beautiful piece you wrote recently uh, for The Post, you know, a divided America is united in its freedom to debate those differences. Yeah. You know, I, I found that such a, a beautiful and poignant way of stating that, yes, you know, things are hard, but we have this kind of undergirding Mm. This undergirding structure, this this powerful thing that we can use, and even though things are hard, it, there is hope, and that we can actually do it if we try. You know,
2: absolutely. And you know, the West is pretty well set up to do that if we want to continue with this. And I say as a fire truck goes roaring past, <laughs> um, the um, so some dumpster fire of ideologies yeah. down the road um i um
1: (laughs) welcome to new york my friend
2: exactly um and um no i mean i'm uh now i've lost my train of thought no i i think america in particular is 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 well set up it's Mm -hmm. it's well set up the first amendment's a great idea yeah it's a good thing to have in place much better than if you didn't have it um so there's lots of cause for optimism
0: but do you worry that the the culture war is 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 becoming the new a new Cold War um, in in a sense that you have now mm. geopolitics affecting right you, you you wrote in your book mm. also about how China for example and a lot of mm. authoritarians around the world benefit from the kind mm. of self loathing yes. ideologies that we're promoting here narratives in the U.S. Mm. but 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 the other way as well you know that uh, it kind of like it's it's you know the you do start to see, I think, the, the new American right look at geopolitics through a culture war lens. So the reason why so many of them are, say, oh, yeah. Russian apologists now is because they see Putin as a defender against wokeness. Um, yeah, and so they bit, take that mistake. position because mistake. of that. Right. So there seems to be these, right. these weird, you know, ways in which geopolitics and, and the culture war are now kind of um, clashing and remains to I be agree. seen how, how we get out of that,
2: right? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a very um it's a very unwise thing to look around the world for um uh, authoritarian regimes to admire and replicate at home or to be sucked yeah. into a regime's view of itself. I mean, like Putin as the totally sincere guardian of Christian values. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh my god
2: i can't quite i can't quite believe the people who fell for that but Mm. yeah that sort of thing and of course it happens the other way around and of course authoritarian regimes use this stuff against us and i do think that one of the consequences of being told that your society is endlessly bad and born in sin and its history is all rotten is Mm. why would you trust yourself to do anything in the present day why would you dare to tell the chinese communist party what it should or shouldn't do mm-hmm. your, you know, you did the opium wars or something. Like it's, mm. it's a, it's a sort of very selective history, which means that basically you, you just checkmate yourself all the time and you can't move and you can't move. I, um, yeah. I, I resist that. I think everybody is responsible for their own actions and their own decisions, but they're not responsible for the actions and decisions of people who happened to look like them in the past. And, um, you know, there is there is such a thing as national belonging and me- memory and inheritance of ideas and good ideas and bad ideas and histories. There is all of that. But don't get fooled into thinking that your whole history can be looked at through one entirely negative light. Uh, reflect on the good as well. You wouldn't want to only have the good. You want, wouldn't want to only have the bad. Reflect on right. the good as well. And particularly, think, think about great men and women of the past. That's one of my, notes. a nice concluding note, but think of the great men and women of the past, the people you really admire, and try to be like them. And look at, mm-hmm. look at their determination and w- how they navigated their lives. And if you do have people like that you can admire and look up to, you can realize that you yourself in your own life will, will um, replicate Fragments of their own um, heroism and their own brilliance, and these are things worth doing. It's much better doing that than reflecting endlessly on people who were bad in the past and not doing mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's important as well, but it's not the only thing. Reflect yeah. on the great men and women of the past and and try to be like them.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And actually, in that spirit, I, I really wanted to ask you. You know, you had a recent podcast with Sam Harris, and you kicked it off mm-hmm. by, um, you know, sort of. I don't want to say throat clearing, but sort of, you know, laying on the table, the fact that you actually criticize the right
3: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, a fair amount, Mm -hmm. um, which I think, I think you acquitted yourself very well there, but I'm curious if I could flip that and ask you if, if you are able to praise the left on anything. Oh yeah,
2: of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are aspects. I think that, I think that the dialectic of politics, such as it is, you know, is, is in part, for instance, a dialectic between rule makers and rule followers and people who want a little bit more leeway. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad dialectic. I think there's a dialectic between people who believe that you should be endlessly compassionate, and so people who believe that you've got to say stop. Um, or let, let, let me not weight it like that. People who want more, com- more emphasis on compassion and people who want more emphasis on discipline. That's an important Mm. dialectic. By the way, I don't have anything wrong with that. That, That's that's dialectic we all go through in our own lives. Yeah. Um, um, I would like to do this thing versus should I? I'd like to have that extra bottle of wine versus should I? (laughs) Um, uh, That's okay. We all know that. We all know that in our lives and we we have to manage it. Mm. We have to navigate it. Well, nations do as well. But the Mm. the instinct of, of part of the left of, you know, a little bit more emphasis on you know, not being so hidebound by rules There's something in that, you know, of mm-hmm. course, of course. There's, 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 and, and, you know, openness as a trait, which is obviously slightly more prevalent on the left, not always, but it is slightly more as a character trait, more prevalent on the left. And um, openness is a good thing. I wouldn't want to be closed to openness. Right. But there is obviously some part of the openness bit, which becomes a difficulty.
0: Um, Douglas, we, we ask our, our last, our guests, the the same last question for every episode. And it is about a fair, we, we try to promote a a pro-human way of, of approaching life and approaching all the issues that we're talking about. What does pro-human mean to you and how can every, everyday people aspire to, to live in a more pro-human way?
2: Gosh, um, pro-human, uh, all I can say is, I mean, I know what anti-human looks like and it's quite a lot of things (laughs) going on in our day. There's sort of um, mm-hmm. an awful lot of things uh, through the environmental movement, through a lot of other movements that at the moment seem to be sort of weirdly anti-human. You get it in the, in the complaints about people living longer and therefore being a drain on resources and the state. Uh, and again, go, mm, yeah, it's not an entirely bad thing that we live longer. Malthusians, you know, no, yeah. That. Yeah, I am. Um, oh, I know. Just to, just to clear that stuff out of the way. That, that, that's the most important thing. I, I often think that's sort of one of, the realms, one of the roles of thinkers is to is to clear the bracken out of the way, the bad ideas of the day, and get on to what you should be doing. That's, that's the real hope I have, which is I, I can help demine some of the culture in order that people can get on with it. And that's mm-hmm. what I think people should be doing. It's what I should be doing. It's what we should all be doing. And people mm-hmm. watching, I hope, will engage in that and, um, and take us somewhere, somewhere better.
0: Love that. That's beautiful, actually. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you for joining us on Fair Perspectives.
2: It's such a pleasure. Really good to see you both. And thank you.
1: You too. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content such as Q&As and bonus episodes by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the Fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.